0: My time is long, but not forever My moods are the changing, wind and weather I'm starting to see a bigger picture I'm beginning to color it in I'm starting to see a bigger picture I'm beginning to color it in
1: Hello and welcome to episode 1969 of Effectively Wild, well, the Fangraphs Baseball Podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Raleigh of Fangraphs and I am joined as always by Ben Limberg of the Ringer. Ben, how are you?
2: I'm doing well. How are you doing in frigid Arizona?
1: Okay, look, I need people to understand something. <laughs> I'm not saying it's good that Jacob DeGrom is already experiencing some kind of something or other with his something or other, right? right. We're not, mm-hmm. not going to pretend that that's good. We are not going to pretend it's particularly surprising. But no. We're not going to we're not going to say that that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. But I have seen Ben. I've seen <laughs> some some insinuations on twitter.com mm-hmm. that Jacob DeGrom or the Rangers depending are being uh, are, are being fragile about mm-hmm. the temperatures. And uh, I appreciated having a friend of the show, Levi Weaver, stand up yes. for Arizona. And I- I'm here to tell you, it was chilly today, you know? Yeah. And not mm-hmm. just in a... Not just in a... I live in Arizona, and so now when it's below 70, I'm like, should I wear a puffy coat? Like, is that one <laughs> mm-hmm. necessary? Like, it was... It was chilly this morning. We have a freeze advisory tonight, you know? Yeah. Now so, it's
2: 54 degrees as we speak, according to Google in Phoenix. It's 63 where I am in New York. So right. it's colder where you are than where I am.
1: Right. And when that um, determination was made, it was earlier in the day. It was colder. It's mm-hmm. colder than it is now, you know, because it yep. gets warmer generally as the day goes on. So look, again, it's not good, but <laughs> just everybody relax. This isn't mm-hmm. this isn't them being precious or anything. Like it was it was a little chilly today. Yeah.
2: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not what you want. It's not what you want your day one spring training storyline to be. You know, yesterday we were talking to Levi as he was driving to Arizona and all the optimism about the Rangers rotation. And then day one, Jacob deGrom felt some tightness in his left side, you know, and immediately it's, uh, if it were the regular season, he would be pitching and it's an abundance of caution and all of that. How many times have we heard that with Jacob deGrom in the best? I I think that's what it is. It just, it makes people flash back to, he's fine. And uh, if he had to be out there, he'd be out there. And then you don't see him for two months. So, right. I mean, there are all kinds of tweaks and aches and pains and things once you start to ramp up your activity in spring yes. training. It's, it's not abnormal. No. It's just the fact that it's Jacob de Gram, So right. everyone is going to panic and say, "Uh oh, here we go again, right. which, you know, given that it's de Gram is not an unreasonable inference, perhaps. But with anyone else, you really wouldn't worry about it. So it's not necessarily something significant. It's just like Groundhog Day.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, Yeah. Yeah. I get anyway. it. I get it. But just <laughs> mm-hmm. like we had a big storm last night, you know, uh-huh. Yeah. When I was at the field yesterday. It was it was cold, Ben. It's yeah. chilly. It's gloomy, you know. So everybody relax.
2: I wanted to talk to you about being at the field because I have to commend you on your photography skills because you and you alone, I think, delivered what I wanted which was not a picture of the bigger base, right? So anyone who was on Twitter on Tuesday knows that they were bombarded by every baseball writer who was in Arizona tweeting pictures of the slightly bigger base because there was a demonstration of the new rules, right, put on by MLB for media members. And so a lot of media members congregated and they got to see the bigger base and everyone tweeted out a photo of the bigger base, which is understandable. Like, could we somehow Delegate only—you know—a couple people have to take pictures of the base. Yeah, but if you're a reporter, you feel like you can't miss out. If everyone else has a bigger base picture, then you've got to have a bigger base picture. So everyone was just crowded around taking this picture of a, a base, and you know, pretty identical, depending on whose feet it was. Except for the initial Nightingale tweet of it, which was right. just the the bigger base, just the with, bigger base with no context, <laughs> no frame of reference. Right. The whole point was to show the bigger base in comparison to the smaller base. Which right. Eventually he got the hang of it and and he did do that. But initially right. he just showed the bigger base which, you know, on its own kind of looks like the old base more or less. You can't tell that it's bigger. No. Anyway, there were many, many almost identical copies of this photo of of the base being displayed, but then you mm. tweeted a photo or multiple photos mm-hmm. of the Writers taking, taking the, photos the photos of the base, yeah. which was exactly what I wanted because you had to figure <laughs> that it was amusing to see everyone oh, yeah. just like crouched over. <laughs> Some people were like, you know, on their bellies, like trying oh, yeah. to get a different angle of the pace, and and you caught the absurdity, uh, you know, the necessary absurdity of the situation, I think. In fact, when I went to the baseball subreddit last night, the highest post, the most popular upvoted post on there, I believe was your photo, except no one attributed it to you. So yeah. it's was, it was basically just stolen and, and put on Reddit. But it did really well once it was there. Well, I'm so. glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that was great. What inspired you to, to take that picture?
1: It looked funny, Ben. I was inspired <laughs> by the fact that it You know, it looked funny to have a bunch of, and I, I, you're right. Like, I get it. There are a lot. There are a lot of folks there. They all, for the most part, write for different publications, and they have to satisfy their their editors. I understand. You know, lesser things have turned people into pageant moms, but that was kind of the (laughs) energy. (laughs) (laughs) And so I thought it was funny and like and, and I hope people took it in a good-natured way because that was how I meant it but it was pretty oh, <laughs> <I'm laughs> yeah. yeah. it is bigger <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah I saw some people suggest that there's some meme potential to particularly your second one like if we get some replay review on a, a base a sliding play at some point during <laughs> the season then you can just <laughs> reuse that old photo just everyone clustered around the base just inspecting it microscopically I love it
1: you know, I didn't expect to learn that I was big on Reddit, but I'm glad to I'm glad to know that <laughs> well, that is true,
2: yeah, no one else knows because uh, no one said it was you, but I recognized Rude. your photo, so Thank I'm giving you. you credit at least. Thank How you. was the rest of that demonstration?
1: It was illuminating in in some ways. I think that one of the things that I was struck by you know and it started with sort of a state of baseball here's where the game is and that was a little less interesting but but then we got into the rule changes and kind of how how MLB went about its process for identifying the things that fans you know, say they care about, uh, in terms of improving their viewing experience of the game, and some of the stuff we've talked about before, and has been written about pretty extensively in terms of its impact in the minor leagues, like the the clock. I think the big, maybe not revelation, but thing we probably should have thought of is that because of how the clock operators and the umpire need to interact with the pitch clock and the pitcher that there will be a renewed emphasis on box and <laughs> right. and preventing them and that there are some guys whose deliveries might have to change in order to comply yeah.
2: Won't be a problem at all because we all recognize clearly when a Bach right. has occurred and, and what type of Bach it is. And we all agree on that. So right. no problems there.
1: Right. Exactly. And so <laughs> that was sort of a an area that I at least had not considered and then felt kind of silly that I hadn't been like, well, yeah, of course, that makes sense. And then, you know, I was not surprised, but like pleased with the candor that the league has about the places where the shift ban might be undone and circumvented it sounds like they talked with a lot of clubs after the rules were announced in september and and did so with the idea of being like okay so how are they going to try to weasel out of this (laughs) you know (laughs) how are they going to try to undo the intent of this rule which is you know to have two guys relatively stationary on either side of second base. And, you know, I asked Morgan sword, who's the executive vice president of baseball operations for the league, you know, in the Q and a session, basically sort of how, how they're going to gauge the efficacy of that rule, right? Like, do they have bench offensive benchmarks in mind? How are they going to assess the impact that it's had on the, on the offensive environment? And, and more importantly, kind of what are their expectations in terms of that? And I appreciated that he was not overly confident in his answer you know he's like we do have some benchmarks in mind he didn't share those but you know he said a lot of this is going to depend on how the hitters adjust their approach at the plate with the new rules and you know they've seen some of that at at play in the minors I guess but you know being able to know how big leaguers are going to react to that and how teams are going to think about the incentives of, you know, trying to get base hits versus still hit for home runs, you know, it's hard to know until it's in, in play. So, but yeah, they they have tried to think about how teams will be shifty about the whole thing. Eh? Is mm-hmm. you and is You <laughs> yes, see the I little did. joke that I made? <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know that they will have identified all of the ways in which they might have, but there is sort of broad authority granted to umpires in the rule that if they determine that teams are trying to sort of circumvent the intent of the rule that they will be able to say to assess a violation to the team. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what are some other things? Shift uh, positioning will be a reviewable play Uh next year. So in theory, a team a hitting team could challenge if they determine that the defenders are in violation of the shift rule infielders will be able to ask the umpire if they are sort of in compliance with the rule in terms of their positioning. So folks who are familiar with football might know that like, you know, receivers will ask, like, am I on the line in a way that I need to be? And the, side so judge is supposed to tell them and umpires mm-hmm. will fulfill the same role here so they're supposed to give guidance to fielders if they're asked uh what else I got to hold the pitch timer device that is gonna buzz on umpires to let them know oh. that mm-hmm. the thing has expired because <laughs> This is, I mean, like, th- this is one of those things that, of course, they had to come up with this, but you're going to have the two clocks that are visible on either side of the batter's eye to the home plate umpire, who is going to be primarily responsible for enforcing the pitch clock in the course of the game. But, you know, the umpire is going to have to, like, get down and get ready to call the pitch at a certain right. point, right? And so... They don't want the home plate umpire trying to watch the pitch as it's coming in so that he can call it a ball or a strike and also trying to keep an eye on those clocks. And so they have they have a little device that the umpire can wear like on, on a band on their wrist or on their ankle or somewhere else on their body that is being manufactured by the same folks who do the pitch comm system. Mm-hmm. And it'll have a haptic alert like you know if you have an apple watch you know you might have that or your phone and ben it is a forceful buzz it will (laughs) not be missed i was like you know i miss my phone buzzing a lot of the time Uh, well i turned off the haptics on my apple watch because that was too annoying but no way that they will miss this it is like i mean it's not like i want to be clear it's not a shock <laughs> but it's a buzz and it is right. like a it's a big buzz it's not
2: picturing you know one of those things they give you at a restaurant when your table is ready or your order is ready or whatever and, and it's, <laughs> it's not, not like one uh, of those
1: no it's not that big like mm-hmm. you know it, it's not <laughs> you're not getting seated at the cheesecake factory ben but um <laughs> but here I I will I'll send you a picture right now and uh you can figure out a way to link to it in the show notes if you want to oh. uh, but D- did you
2: take a picture of other writers taking no, a picture I just of took, it
1: i took one but see <laughs> i put it in my hand for yeah. some scale. kind of scale now yeah,
2: i don't know how big your hand is i have be a like norm- be a I have
1: normal <laughs> as a judgment i have average hands <laughs>
0: okay <I can't> <laughs> right. my height i don't know man <laughs> uh
1: so fraught to say but like you know it's like that it's like that size it's Mm -hmm. that size okay so yeah there's that yeah they really did rip off my photo without giving me credit on reddit that's (laughs) so rude yeah (laughs) gosh you know i don't know how it's all gonna work i mean i think that we know how the pitch clock stuff will work i think that will have both the biggest impact be the thing that folks adjust to the most quickly you know Apart from guys who might have to change their whole delivery. (laughs) But in theory, those guys have been communicated with before now. And, you know, they kind of tracked the frequency of violations in the minors for uh, the clock and a lot in the early going and then decreasing over time as you know, teams and players got used to that. Mm -hmm. So they indicated that their hope is that the spring training period, you know, you might see a lot of violations, but in theory it should taper as the spring goes on. Uh, And hopefully by the time we get to opening day, guys will be comfortable. And of course there are players who are going to be on, you know, Big league rosters who have played with a pitch clock before. This isn't going to be entirely new. Most of them at at some point, at
2: some level. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, let's see. Joe Martinez wore a t shirt. I mean, it was like a polo, but like a a short sleeve shirt in cold weather. So, oh,
2: so he's fine with the weather.
1: Yeah. Mm. Good head hair on that guy. But yeah, it was, you know, kind of took us through everything what other things what other things did i ask we know that the shift alignment will require you know two on each side of second base and that they will, within the course of an inning, have to sort of stay consistent in who is where, right? So they can't flip their best defender from one side to the other to try to gain an advantage. If they bring in an outfielder to serve as a fifth infielder, which they are allowed to do, that outfielder is not restricted in terms of where he can stand. Uh-huh. I asked that because I wasn't sure if there were going to be restrictions there There or not. so. Got it. There's that piece of it. Mm-hmm. They don't want you to get a running start. This is oh, one of don't. our things, right? We were like, are they just yeah. gonna start running? <laughs> right. um, and they are like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> you can't be. You can't be like running as the as the pitch is being delivered and you can't huh, be running okay. <laughs> i wonder if clubs are going to look back and be like we should have been less transparent with the league when we talked about how we were going to
2: we do this
1: you know um <laughs> yeah. but it's it's going to be fun because i'm sure that there will be clubs that try to push the envelope in some way but it's not going to last very long because you're going to see it every night on the yeah. field right this is if you are trying to press any kind of advantage and the league deems it to be one that is in violation of sort of the spirit of the rule, it's not like you can conceal it because your guy has to be in a place that he shouldn't be.
2: <laughs> right. So, yeah. Yeah, we got a question from listener Patreon supporter Reggie who said the rule says the clock will begin when the pitcher receives the ball from the catcher. So what's to stop the catcher from holding on to the ball for an extra two or three or five seconds because you can't start the clock until can, the catcher throws the ball can be back, as- right?
1: assessed with a violation as yeah,
2: well. Right. Yeah, right. So I haven't heard about that being a big issue in the minors, and I think it would be pretty glaring, right? I mean, if the right. catcher is just sitting or standing there not doing anything for, <laughs> for several seconds, right, without throwing the ball back, like a pitcher, in the old days at least, you could, you know— Occupy yourself Right You could uh, Stalk around You could shake off Some pitch signs You could uh, Go check out The rosin bag Whatever it was A catcher only has So much to do Back right. there So I think it would be Pretty obvious If that were happening And it's up to the umpires Of course To move things along You know Might there be some catchers Who ask for an extra ball More often than they used to Or stand up And squat again Or uh, pretend they got Hit by a foul tip Or something I don't know That might happen More often than it did But I doubt it'll be Dramatic and umpires will probably catch on to that. Although if umpires were great at legislating these things themselves and monitoring Pace of game and enforcing that, then we wouldn't actually need the pitch clock. But that was never the case. And they were never really backed up for that right. to be the case. But now there's just so much scrutiny, so much emphasis on all of this that I'm sure that people will be keeping a close eye on these things. So I'm glad the demonstration was productive, that it, it wasn't just a bunch of baseball writers gathered around bases like the monolith from 2001. There was I mean, more there to was it than that. Yes. <laughs> right. But I do think that the pickoff rule is probably going to be the one that has a a bigger impact than we have given it credit for, maybe, just because uh, that's really going to change the balance of power between the pitcher and the runner. And there's a, a good piece, uh, there's a Substack called The Advanced Scout, which is written by Noah Woodward, who's a, a former front office member and used to write for Baseball Prospectus and the Hardball Times. And he went through pickoffs and how they helped pitchers and how they won't be able to help them anymore. And he noted that most of the time, even in a case where a pitcher threw over, 70% of the time that they threw over, they threw over only one time so it it wasn't all that often it was like an additional you know 20% of the time that they were actually doing two pickoffs over there so you might conclude from that well it won't be that big a deal because pitchers rarely threw over more than twice anyway but now you're you're functionally down to one almost because once you throw your second one then you're out of pickoffs right unless you get the guy out the third time you try. And so now it's almost like you won't even want to use your second one over there. So you're really restricted in what you can do to suppress the running game because you are limited in terms of how many times you can step off and all of that too. And you can't hold the ball and, and delay for a long time. So I do think that's going to have a pretty big impact. And, and Russell Carlton has found in the past that when you do throw a pickoff attempt, it suppresses the caught stealing attempt rate and then also the success rate by like 12 percentage points or something when you've already thrown over there. So you take that away, I think that might actually have a, a pretty big impact. So it's a reason to watch spring training games. I'm more motivated to watch spring training than I usually am because often I'll tune in for the first games and then I'll be like, yeah, this is not actually that interesting. This The results don't count and I don't know who some of these players are. But this spring, as they're trying to work out the kinks and and learn how all of these new rules work it might actually be kind of entertaining right probably right. a lot of gif potential and also actually getting some insight into how these things will play out over the course of the season
1: yeah and we should be clear like the way that the rules work around their disengagement is what yeah. we're calling it that's the mm-hmm. word disengagement uh, it's not just what happens when you have an annoying twitter presence so you get the <laughs> the two without penalty. And then if you successfully right. pick off the, the runner on the third one, fine.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: If you don't, it's a balk and all, everyone advances. But then your disengagements reset following yes. the advance of the base runner. So like if you throw over the third time and it's like, sorry, no luck. Mm-hmm. And everybody moves up a base because of a balk, you then get to step off two times again, right? Like, it's, Yes. So... Just in case everyone's like, never in an (laughs) inning?
2: Yeah, it is kind of complicated. Like the early regular season games, there's going to be a lot of broadcasters laying out these new rules and explaining them very clearly and slowly, which is good. You got to make sure everyone watching understands how they play the game these days. But yeah, we're going to get many explanations, I'm sure. So we'll all be on the same page, hopefully, by the time the season starts. Okay, a couple other things. MLB TV is now going to include minor league games, yes! which I think is, is pretty great, right? I mean, <sighs> Ben, <laughs> it's, Ben. It's pretty wonderful.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry. I interrupted you. Ben. I no, was like, yeah, was, Ben, yeah. wonderful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I was looking at the Reddit that's not crediting my tweet and getting increasingly annoyed about it. Yeah, because um, the service before, you could subscribe to MILB TV. And they mm-hmm. were putting more minor league games on MLB TV last year. Like they would, you know, there was sort of yeah. a trickle of them. But you couldn't, there wasn't an app native to my Apple TV for MILB TV. And so Mm -hmm. I'd have to cast things and then I'd complain about this on Twitter and then people would explain stuff to me in a way that was irritating. But now I can just style it up there. It's going to be great.
2: Yeah, it's really good. Yeah. And, you know, it's uh, there are fewer minor league teams and leagues out there these days, but uh, at least I guess we're making the ones that are out there a little more accessible via this package. And they did raise the price, of course, as well. Maybe they would have anyway, what with inflation. At least they're giving us something else for it. And you and I, I mean, we would be subscribing to MLB TV or watching MLB TV regardless, but it is a nice perk to actually get some real value added yeah. there. I'm excited about being able to watch those things. You know, I'm sure a good portion of the subscribers will not really be that interested in watching my new games. But for those who are, it's great. And maybe some people will discover that they're more interested than they thought they were. So happy about that. And I guess uh, there have been some injury announcements and signings and so forth. But again, we will cover those as we roll around the team previews. For instance, the Padres signing Michael Waka. Did they mention anything at the rules announcement about the Padres 40 man being <laughs> expanded to, uh, what is it, 47 men? They're allowed now, I yeah, think, is the latest.
1: 59, 67, yeah. 84. Might have been in one of the footnotes or one of the slides and I missed it. I okay. don't want to I I don't need to talk about michael waka specifically mm-hmm. but i do want to say one thing that i find funny and that was a point of discussion in in my slack dms today which is that it is deeply amusing we don't have the exact terms of waka's deal at this point um mm-hmm. i know that it's like 24 million over four years and there are a yeah. bunch of team sounds and like
2: it's a, a chad green style why an these
1: guys <laughs> who have the crazy complicated options
2: like
1: <laughs> i don't I don't understand. I get it when, you know, I I think there were parts of it that I wasn't a fan of. But, like, I understand that if you're committing, you know, potentially hundreds of millions of dollars to, like, Julio Rodriguez, like, that might be, there might Mm -hmm. be something to that contract, right? Like, it might be kind of complicated. But, like, it's Michael (laughs) Walker.
2: Yeah, I understood with Green because of the uncertainty about right. when he'll be back and, and how good he'll be and all of that. And I guess with Waka, there's always a little bit of uncertainty about health, but not in as acute a way as there was with Green. So I don't know. Suddenly, it's just <laughs> these modest contracts are incredibly complicated, it seems. Anyway, Padres uh, somehow squeezing another player onto their ever-expanding roster. And it also came out that they are now, it, it seems like, going to be switching over from a revenue sharing recipient to a revenue sharing payee. So because their revenue has increased so much and because they expect it to increase so much more with more ticket sales and sponsorships, et cetera. So it does turn out that you do have to spend money to make money, or at least that is one way you can do it. So I don't know whether that pays for the spending that they've done on the free agent market and on the trade market and everything if you're doing a just an annual budget. But it does go to show that even in a modest media market, if you invest in your team and everyone gets super excited about it, granted, there aren't as many alternative pro teams in San Diego for people to get excited about, but still, Padres fans are excited about the Padres, and I would be too if my team were allowed to roster 49 players.
1: Yep. As Stephanie (laughs) Epstein said, small market is a state of mind.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And I hope, by the way, that we'll get some news at some point about uh, fewer blackouts in MLB TV, speaking of MLB TV, because it it does sound like that's a priority now. Rob Manfred made some statements about how that is a priority for the league and – We'll see. Their hands are tied to some extent. But as we discussed recently with all the the Bally's uh, possible bankruptcy situation, perhaps they'll be able to claw back some rights and show us more games because that'd be really nice, too, if we could pay for MLB TV and also watch all the games on there. (laughs) That would be great, too. At least the ones that are not split up into seven other streaming services.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I have so many streaming services now. And because I like Poker Face, I have another. I have another yes. I didn't used to have, Ben. And mm-hmm. so I feel... Overwhelmed
2: By yeah, them well People tend to Churn them now They just want to Watch one show They signed up For a month And right. then they Binge that And then they Let their Subscription lapse So there's right. a lot Of turnover These days As people are Trying to juggle Several streaming services So there's uh, Something that happens When spring training Starts which is It's very exciting And everyone shows up And then you start Getting injury news Pour in So whether it's yeah. uh, DeGrom feeling Some soreness Or it's Frankie Montas Of yeah. the Yankees Possibly going to Miss the entire season Or it's Steven Strasburg having another setback, it's like there's this Schrodinger's injury thing that happens like before pitchers report, before players show up and start to do things that sometimes injure them or you find out about pre-existing injuries, you can just sort of dream and fantasize about the season and look at who you got. And then reality sets in when spring training starts and this guy's shoulder hurts and that guy's elbow hurts. And often these things, as you're ramping up for the regular season workload, that is when things tend to break. Or you realize that something you hoped would have healed over the offseason didn't. And that's why we see so many Tommy John surgeries or injuries that lead to Tommy John surgeries tend to crop up in spring training. So it's a combination of uh, the optimism, of renewal, of spring, and it's a fresh start. And then almost immediately, there's just an onslaught of sad, depressing news, too. Yeah. So you can't have one without the other, I suppose.
1: Yeah, it is a bummer. But, you know, it's like the, the 60-day IL opens up and... You got to tell people when people are hurt, so you can start moving guys over there. Not that Jacob yeah. Degrom is going on the sixty-eight aisle. No. I'm not, <laughs> not saying that. That no. isn't what I'm saying. But right. part of it is that there is this, you know, option available to teams now that they can mm-hmm. move guys there who are injured in more substantial ways than Jacob deGrom, who was, it sounds like, just sore and cold, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, who hasn't been sore and cold or <laughs> sore because of cold. So right. there's that piece of it, too, where it's like, well, right. we get to, add, you know, put a guy on the 60-day and that opens up a roster spot for us. And now we can go sign, you know, a veteran to an overly complicated deal for no reason.
2: <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, with the Padres specifically, they don't have to worry about the roster spots as much as everyone else does. because right, they
1: have like ninety we've established. Exactly. Yeah. They got yeah. a special exemption.
2: <laughs> so we've got a guest today, we and do. it's a, a recurring guest, a favorite of ours, a pal, Evan Drellick, who is a newly published author of a very fine book about baseball called Winning Fixes Everything, How Baseball's Brightest Minds Created Sport's Biggest Mess. It's about the Houston Astros. It's about sign stealing, but it's about much more than that and the league as a whole and how a front office operates and functions or dysfunctions, as the case may be. Evan's been working on this one for a while, so we will have him on to talk about this in just a moment. I'm going to give you a, a related stat blast, this week's stat blast, to sort of segue into our interview here. we awesome.
1: will take a data set to
2: So one follow-up from last week's Stat Blast about the retired numbers we talked about uh, prompted by Fernando Valenzuela's number being retired by the Dodgers. We talked about the numbers that, statistically speaking, deserve to be retired league-wide across the league. We talked about every team and, and the best candidates. There was one oversight during that conversation, which was that somehow Atlanta and Milwaukee got Lumped together in Mm. the data in the spreadsheet and so we did not specifically call out the Milwaukee brewers who most deserve to have their numbers retired by this war based method. So I will tell you now that the leading brewer candidate is Ryan Braun. (laughs) <laughs> Which is, I guess, uh, kind of complicated. You know, he remains popular in Milwaukee, yeah. I believe. Uh, he would get booed in the latter stages of his career when he went on the road, but in Milwaukee, they like him. Yes. So, whether the issues with PDs and lying about PDs and all the rest of it, whether that uh, prevents him from getting his number retired, I don't know, but he would be the leading candidate. After that, it's Jonathan Lucroy. I'm not sure if that uh, appreciation of framing has advanced to the point where Jonathan Lucre would be a strong candidate to get his number retired. But statistically speaking, fangraphs war wise, he should be Ben Sheets after that.
0: Mm-hmm. And then
2: Cecil Cooper, I think, would be after that as well. And Teddy Higuera. So I'll uh, link to that spreadsheet. And if you are a Brewers fan and you want to see, you can just uh, select Atlanta and you will see some Milwaukee players lumped in there as well. And one other question we got, because we noted that Randy Johnson and Ichiro both show up as leading candidates for the Mariners to retire their numbers. And as you noted, Ichiros uh, will be retired right sometime soon. Presumably, he's going to get into the Hall of Fame not long from now. And so some people asked, How they should handle that because Randy Johnson and Ichiro had the same number, they both were 51 and they have not retired the big unit's number and I assume that they will not if they retire each row that it will just be specifically for each row I think it's, that
1: that is correct
2: Yeah, it's it's kind of awkward I think Randy Johnson had a statement at some point about how he was told that if it was retired it, it would just be for each row and I don't know if that is because he wasn't there long enough or because he was with the Diamondbacks uh, during years when he won a championship and Cy Young Awards I guess he went into the hall as a diamond pack, right? right? So there's sometimes some lingering bitterness, right, which, which came up when we were talking about the Orioles not retiring Mike Messina's number. And a lot of it seems to be, well, because he left and he went to the Yankees and he went into the Hall of Fame with neither cap. But sometimes it's like if a player leaves and it's not always that they sign a free agent contract somewhere else, sometimes they get traded. I mean, Johnson got traded from the Mariners, right? right. So it seems odd to me to hold it against someone, like maybe while they're still active and they're still playing for the other team. Okay, but once the dust settles, can't you just uh, let bygones be bygones and say we had a great time with you on our franchise and what happened after that is uh, none of our concern? I don't know.
1: <sighs> you would think that, wouldn't you?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I would think that. <laughs> but, you know,
1: sometimes feelings are complicated, Ben.
2: Yeah, I guess so. All right. So the step last question today, this was uh, prompted by a baseball subreddit post that was not a ripoff of uh, Meg Raleigh's photography work, but it was posted by listener Monty211. And the thread said, during 2005, the Brewers had nine future All-Stars at the same time who either played in their minor leagues that year eight of them, or was a rookie. One of them was a rookie. So J.J. Hardy was a rookie, and he became a two-time All-Star. And then Ricky Weeks was in the system and graduated as their number one prospect. Prince Fielder, Corey Hart, Nelson Cruz, Giovanni Gallardo, Ryan Braun, as we mentioned, Michael Brantley, Lorenzo Cain. And this person wanted to know if if that was historic, if that was a lot of future All-Stars to have bouncing around in your system at the same time. So Ryan Nelson, frequent stat blast consultant, answered this one, RS Nelson 23 on Twitter. And he wrote on Reddit, if we compare that to baseball history, this is nothing. If we compare it to more recent history, it's a lot but not quite historic. So in earlier baseball, there were fewer MLB teams and more minor league teams. This was also a time before free agency or the Rule 5 draft, so teams could stock absolutely wild amounts of talent in the minors. The elite teams in this regard were the 1930s to 40s Cardinals, the 1930s to 40s Yankees, and the 1940s to 50s Dodgers. The below table represents the number of pre-MLB debut future All-Stars each franchise had by year. For the sake of clarity, these counts include players who played with a franchise's minor league system in a given season and had entered that season having not debuted with an MLB team. So by that count, the 2005 Brewers only had six since Hardy did not play in the minors in 2005 and Weeks debuted very briefly in 2003, so they would not qualify. So by that measurement, it's the 1938 Cardinals had 16 future All-Stars in their system at the time. And, you know, this was uh, Branch Rickey and uh, codified the farm system and had so many affiliates, formal or informal, and just had control of hundreds and hundreds of players and would either promote them from within or use them to uh, acquire other more established players. So the 38, 39 Cardinals had 16 and 14 future All-Stars, and then the 34 and 37 Cardinals had 13, as did the 37 and 38 Yankees, and it's all of those teams from... That period of time and Ryan continues those systems were stacked so for example the 1938 Cardinals system these players, uh, they had Elmer Riddle, Johnny Hop, Ken Raffensberger, Marty Marion, Max Lanier, Oscar Judd, Walker Cooper, Emile Verban, Harry Brasheen, Lou Bedreau, Mort Cooper, Murray Dixon, Red Munger, Nick Etten, Whitey Kurowski, Johnny Sane, and Ryan included comps of more modern players for those old-timey players just to give a sense of uh, how much war one might expect from those guys, and it's a lot. So he comped it to basically having a rotation of Bumgarner, Sale, Strauss Wainwright and Kane with Anibal Sanchez and Jeff Samarja and company waiting in the wings with a Hall of Famer and a couple of of very good players in the infield. So that's how much the late 30s Cardinals were controlling. But since 1990, so more modern times, the Brewers six is pretty competitive. So the 2005 Dodgers had eight in their system. The 2007 and 2010 Reds also had eight future All Stars in their system. And then with seven, we have the 99 Blue Jays, the 2006 Dodgers, the 2008 Reds, the 2011 Diamondbacks, and the 2014 and 15 Cubs. And I will include this uh, post in the full list if anyone wants to check that out. So, for example, the 2005 Dodgers had Carl Santana, Chad Billingsley, Hung Kuo, Joel Hanrahan, Jonathan Broxton, Kenley Jansen, Matt Kemp, and Russell Martin all in their system at the same time. 2007 Reds had Devin Masarocco, Jay Bruce, Joey Votto, Johnny Cueto, Josh Hamilton, Justin Turner, Todd Frazier, and Zach Kozart. That's a lot. The most recent team with six is the 2017 Braves, and they still have a chance at more. So there's six, Austin Riley, Max Freed, Mike Soroka, who is now Michael Soroka, I read, Ozzy oh. Albies, Ronald Acuna, and William Contreras. And they're still players with all-star potential who could be added to the list, Ian Anderson, Kyle Wright, Joey Manessas, our man, and A.J. Minter. So this kind of got me curious about what the average expectation should be cuz these are the high points when your system is super stacked with future all-stars but that could lead to unreasonable expectations right and i think at this time of year when we're looking at prospect rankings and farm rankings it's good to keep some sense of perspective here you know you, you don't want to be like bob nightingale just taking a picture of the bigger base and not knowing how much bigger the base is than the smaller base right so you <laughs> you want a sense of of the baseline <laughs> <laughs> the
1: base why yeah
2: the baseline
1: we should start measuring things in bigger bases like we do with altuves you know it's like it should right. be its own unit of measure exactly uh, you know so oh, so
2: the all-star game hasn't been around forever obviously but since uh, 1945 or if we go 1945 to 2010 since more recent years may not have had a chance to have all their all-stars hit yet It's 2.6 future All-Stars is the average number of All-Stars to be playing in a team's system in any given year. So 2.6 All-Stars somewhere lurking in your system, and that could be anywhere in Affiliated Ball. It could be down to you know your Dominican Summer League teams, your Rookie League teams. These numbers may change now that there are fewer minor league teams and affiliates, perhaps, although I guess there are just as many All-Stars as ever, if not more. So 2.6 six, that's sort of your your baseline for how many all-stars the average system in any given year will produce at some point in the future and no guarantee that they'll be all-stars for you and your organization just at any point in their career. There is actually an interesting study Bill James published this week where he found that historically exactly 50% of team value has come from players who had never played before for any previous major league team and 50% from players who had played for some previous team. So it's 50-50 for players as well. Throughout major league history, the average player has had 50% of his career value while playing for his first team and 50% while playing for some other team. So to say that your system might produce two all-stars, well, they may not be all-stars until after they go somewhere else. So from 1961 to 2010, so that's since the beginning of expansion, 2.45 is the average. From 1998 to 2010, the 30-team era, it's 2.36. So more recently, it's, it's really about 2.4 All-Stars. So it's not a lot, I guess. If we all dream on, you know, you look at your system's top 10 and you think, oh, this guy's got an All-Star ceiling and that guy's got an All-Star ceiling, you know, it varies, I'm sure, based on, how highly your system is ranked but on the whole the average system you're only going to get about two and a half all-stars out of that system in the entirety of their careers so i think you you kind of have to keep your expectations in check a little bit about the amount of high ceiling talent that is going to come out of that system at any point it's hard to develop players
1: yeah it it turns out That baseball is hard, Ben.
2: Yeah. And I I also asked him to look at this another way. So, not just with all stars, but number of future major leaguers, period and then number of uh, long-lasting major leaguers. So he did two minimums. He did like 600-plus plate appearances or batters faced and 3,000-plus plate appearances or batters faced. And the numbers, you know, they get pretty small. So he did this on a league-wide level year by year, going back uh, almost a century, and then he did it per team average. So if we look at, like, 2008, I guess, was uh, the the peak, at least the recent peak, of the number of players in minor league systems in affiliated ball. It was like 7,000 players were in affiliated ball in 2008. And of those uh, 7,000 in 2008, barring, I guess, anyone who uh, still hasn't shown up, although that would be tough at this point, Yeah, the number of future major leaguers is 950 which is, you know, a lot of future major leaguers, but that's out of 7,000. So that's like 13.6% of all the players in affiliated ball will be big leaguers at some point, which matches up exactly with a stat that I had in the MVP machine about that too. So again, most players, they're not going to make it, which is probably not a huge surprise to to anyone including those players. But 13.6%, that's roughly the percentage that will be big leaguers of any kind And then if you limit it to big leaguers who get 600 plate appearances or batters faced, then in 2008, you're down to 387. So that's about 5.5%. So about 5.5 will have like even a season's worth, essentially, of playing time. And then if you want 3,000-plus plate appearance or batters faced careers, then we're down to 86 guys that year. And that as a percentage is about 1.2%. So if you're talking about players who will actually become established, long tenured big leaguers, it's really like 1% of all the players in affiliated ball. So if you're doing that on a per team, per system basis, then the 950 for all 30 teams, that goes down to about 31.7%. So in any given team system in any given year, you're looking at roughly 31, 32 future big leaguers for any team, not just for your organization, but any. And then about 13 will last for a season or so in the majors, and then about three two to three maybe will become long lasting big leaguers which tracks roughly with the number of future all-stars you know so you're you're at about uh like 30 future big leaguers maybe a little more than that and then maybe like a dozen players who will last for a season or so in the majors and then really it's like two to three players will have long careers in the big leagues or become all-stars so it's, it's just not a lot you know and so if you're a team that's done a great job of uh, developing players either scouting them drafting them developing them whatever it is then you're way ahead of the game because most systems it's not that fertile you're only gonna produce you know two to three stars or, or long-lasting players and that may or may not be with your organization <laughs>
1: Yeah, but see, the thing about it is, Ben, when you find those things, it doesn't mean that the lists get shorter.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Right. You're making
1: an argument for long (laughs) lists, (laughs) and that's fine. But I'm just saying, that's the argument yeah. you're making. I
2: mean, you could share these stats with Eric Langenhagen I and say, hey, look, you're only going to get a couple of uh, long-lasting big leaguers out of the system. So do we have to rank 40 guys? Yeah, but. but, but you don't know which which two or three they'll be. And, so.
1: and <laughs> a lot of them are going to be a big leaguer somewhere. Yes, that's right. Yes, yeah, is- right.
2: I mean the right. I, yeah that that's the case I guess yes you're right so if you if you can expect thirty plus future major leaguers right. in the system at any given time then that is an argument for ranking yeah. thirty plus guys per system I suppose
1: yeah and you know it's satisfying when the deadline rolls around and there's a nineteen year old no one's heard of and when I'm like yeah we have a report on that guy already
2: right exactly. Yeah. All right, well, that segues into our topic of conversation today because uh, the Houston Astros, they have done a pretty good job of developing and promoting players, but at what cost? At what cost? <laughs> we will talk to Evan Drellick about that in just a moment. All right, we are back, and we are joined now by Evan Drellick, who is a senior writer for The Athletic and also the author of a brand new book. It's called Winning Fixes Everything, How Baseball's Brightest Minds Created Sport's Biggest Mess. Evan, welcome and
0: congratulations. This is refreshing after speaking to radio stations in <laughs> uh, Albuquerque and uh, some other lovely cities, and they were all lovely interviews, but this is yes. refreshing.
2: Yes, I I know the feeling. I mean, look, it's nice to have anyone want to talk to you about anything you did generally, if it's for a good reason, like you wrote a book. But sometimes uh, your publisher will set up a whole line of interviews with uh, people who don't know who you are and haven't cracked the book and just got a press release or something and very clearly have uh, not read a page, which, hey, any publicity is good publicity, I guess. But I can assure you that we have read not just a page, but all of the pages. All the pages. we've very much enjoyed the book. Yeah. Thank you guys. I'm glad I'm glad you made it through. Yeah, it was easy to make it through. Yeah. And I wanted to ask I don't know whether you decided on the title and the subtitle or not cuz uh, sometimes authors don't have final say on that. But there's no Astros in the title or the subtitle. Now the cover is Astros colors, right? It's blue and orange. So it's Astros themed in that sense. But you didn't say uh, how the Astros brightest minds created sports biggest mess or winning fixes everything for the Astros. (laughs) That doesn't really roll off the tongue. But you know what I mean? I was kind of curious whether the thinking for that was either you wanted it to be more money ballish in the sense that this is a, a broader, bigger book. It's not limited to a single team because that team tells us something about the league as a whole. Or maybe you thought there'd be Astros fatigue at this point after years of talking about the Astros and you didn't necessarily want to have Astros front and center. So what went into that if this was even a conversation?
0: Yeah, I I chose the title. The editor uh, who did a a fine job at one point thought that maybe the, the Main title should have quote marks around it. Thinking that well, pe- yeah. are people going to understand? Uh, winning fixes everything, and I was pretty adamant. No, we're 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 leaving that. I, so early on, <laughs> I knew the title. There was a placeholder subtitle at one point that went up on Amazon. Nobody told me it was going up; it just appeared up there, you know, in the listings, which I was disappointed by. But it was never supposed to be the the, the final one. And then, you know, to your question about not mentioning the Astros, I, I was concerned about it. There, it, it was deliberate in the, as you say, or point to keeping it broader, right? Because some of this is owed to the league. And I do think there are some bright people uh, at the league. And and we know that there's some other teams that were involved in in some behavior. And, you know, the Astros alone aren't the only team that's operated in a kind of a cutthroat way. But yeah, I I was a little concerned from a marketing standpoint of just like, are people going to know this is a book about the Astros? And my editor was not worried about that. He, he he was quite sure that anybody who picked it up was going to be aware or very quickly become aware of uh, what it was about. So I don't know if I made the if if that was the right decision, but that's how it went.
1: Well, I imagine that people will have some idea because the initial reporting that you and Ken did, I think, is probably some of the most impactful baseball reporting of our lifetime, anyway. But that obviously wasn't all of the reporting that you did for the book. So I'm curious what your process was like once you had decided this is going to get book-length treatment. There are, are themes and questions here that you were interested in exploring that went beyond simply the sign-stealing, how you went about doing that additional work to to fill out the rest of the book.
0: Yeah, painfully. What was my methodology of of reaching out to people? You know, I I, I knew generally the events... To go through certainly there were things that came up in the reporting process that i you know hadn't previously thought about uh but the book largely in, in kind of the overall structure more or less looks as i kind of thought it would and i think really what i did was i made a list of people i wanted to reach out to and i just started making calls you know as opposed to it being okay today i'm i'm only doing x you know it kind of moved between different things i i think probably it was the case if I was doing a specific topic like I'm trying to think when did I talk to cardinals people it might you know might have all been in the same kind of time you know you talk to one person maybe somebody else suggests another but it was so it wasn't totally rigid uh, but it was you know making a list and going through
2: it Yeah, I think we had you on uh, episode 1769, which was like November of 2021, and we asked you then about the sign stealing and how you broke the story and all of that, and and you told us, wait for the book. So we've been waiting very patiently. (laughs) It's been a while. (laughs) You've been waiting, too. It was worth the wait, I think, and I'm sure it was frustrating that it took as long as it did. I mean, not that it's that long by book writing standards, but I'm sure you were impatient, what with uh, people writing other things about the Astros and other books and podcasts and you know, worried that maybe the world would move on. I, I feel like it worked out well in terms of timing it, at least from my perspective, because A, the Astros are still as relevant as ever, right? They're the reigning World Series champions. So it's not like they suddenly uh, fell out of the spotlight. And B, I would imagine that the passage of time must have made some elements of the reporting process easier for you because, People move on. There's just this exodus, this uh, diaspora from the Astros front office. Which, you know, when I was working on a chapter about the Astros and the MVP machine, which was in 2018, that was just as people were were starting to spread out from the organization. And when they did, they became much more willing to open up about what went on there. You know, that was back when Luna was still around, and I have uh, petulant emails in my inbox from Jeff Luna, (laughs) just like, "We're not going to talk to you. I'm not going to talk to you. Stop trying." To talk to people. (laughs) But a few years on, even Luno's not there anymore. And I would think that just because there was so much like backbiting and so many squabbles and factions in the Astros front office, that probably people were motivated to get their side of the story out there. Right. So it it seems like there were probably a lot of people who were willing to talk who might not have been if you were writing about this, uh, you know, trying to get this published, like, you know, if the lockout hadn't intervened and everything else that you've reported on since then.
0: Yeah. So the first year I agreed to do the book in March of 2020, February, March, right? Spring, right before the pandemic. And that first year was really all reporting. I didn't start writing until 21. And so because and the reporting continued, there was still reporting going on in 21, trying to think, was there any there might have even been a little bit this year. The bulk of it was 20 and then some into 21. Because it was so fresh off of the scandal, I don't know that it totally worked that way. I do think that people – because something wild and crazy had happened here and, and because people felt that in some cases there was a record of, of things that needed to be corrected or a fuller story to be told, I do think that that helped. Um, mm-hmm. If you have th- – there was a large triggering event, you know, yeah. and, and that leaves people
2: in a position of and, – And you pulled the trigger, so <laughs> that, that probably. Right. Helps too, I guess. <laughs> uh, Yeah.
0: So, you know, they, I think that was more it than the timing. I was, I never thought that the story was going to fade. I did want it out sooner. I, I, I was confident the material I had would still be relevant. I, I wasn't sure how to look at is it good or bad for the book if the Astros were to win a world series in 21 or 22, but you know, both years. And then then once it happened in 22, it was interesting that the responses I kept getting from people was like, Oh, this is good because it's, it's going to be renewed interest or even further interest in the team. I think the earliest the book could have possibly come out would have been, I don't know, September of last year. Like just in terms of if we'd really had our, our act together and moved quickly, both, Me on the making edits front and the publisher on the back end, if, you know, given a choice between having the book come out now and September, I actually think now is probably a a better time. So Mm -hmm. it it worked out. But yeah, it it was really hard for three years or two and a half years seeing other people talk about it, speculate on it, report on it, podcast about whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and and knowing I had this wealth of material and, and I think a vantage and a, and a reporting history that, you know, nobody else had on it and sitting on my hands. I mean, even the stuff about uh, how how Ken and I got the story, people made a lot of yeah. assumptions about that. And we we said nothing. And that was our choice, you know, but that doesn't mean it was necessarily easy. It wasn't. Yeah. I
2: guess you were used to sort of sitting on a story that you were working on because you've worked on the dealing story for more than a year, right? You and then you and Ken. And I wonder during that protracted process where you were trying to get that story in publishable form and get people on the record, did you ever come close to abandoning that? Like, we'll just never know. I can't crack this one. And can you say anything about how you were initially tip to that without outing anyone, because your book starts with you kind of catching wind of this in October of 2018, right, and and from people, you say, who were involved directly and had firsthand knowledge of this. And I just wonder what motivation people had to talk about it, right, because, uh, you know, you cite other people who were involved either warning their teammates, as Mike Fires did after they left the Astros, or Alex Cora possibly imbibing too much and bragging about about it, Right. So there could be guilt. There could be people giving people intel. There can be just braggadocio. Like what initially led to you getting some wind that this is happening, if you can say.
0: Yeah. You know, the question of motives for whistleblowers, they would really have to a- answer that themselves. And, you know, I, it, it would be tough to speculate. I mean, we we obviously had one of the four on the record in Mike Fires and he talked about his discomfort with it. I do think that sometimes that, that general displeasure or discomfort that people have with wrongdoing is overlooked in this discussion, right? As far as the potential of, of any other motives, other people would have to answer on it. I, I couldn't, it wouldn't be fair of me to speculate on it. And if I tried to, You know, I wouldn't want to be giving away any sort of identifiable information. So it's a fair question. I think we shouldn't overlook that, you know, some people just don't like it when bad things are are going on. Mm -hmm. And I I just, I can't go further. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not a bad question, but I can't go further.
1: I think one of the things that I both enjoyed the most and found the most impressive as the book goes on is this balance that you struck between sort of situating the Astros within a broader baseball culture, one that prioritizes gaining small edges and, you know, over time has become more and more sort of ruthless and efficient in trying to eke out marginal value while also acknowledging that, you know, while other teams were engaged in some illegal sign stealing activity that like there was something unique to what was going on in Houston and, that they, at least in terms of what we know to be true and can say with confidence publicly, like that they were sort of in a a class all their own. And I wondered how you thought about sort of balancing those things because you don't want to let the individuals who were involved in Houston off the hook for behavior that it sounds like at, at various points they themselves were aware was, you know, transgressing a line, but we also don't want to let the industry off the hook more broadly because that seems like a really good way to get whatever the next version of, you know, the banging scheme is, right? So how how did you think about sort of situating them within a broader baseball culture?
0: My mind is taking me here. I don't know if it should be taking me here, but you know, Ben and I, and Meg, I don't know if, you, if you've watched it, but you know, Ben and I both liked Andor a lot. Um and we, we you know, I think one of the compelling things about Andor is, is a bit of the ambiguity. The good guys can kind of be bad guys sometimes. Yeah. And I think the reality, like as a reporter, I am drawn to the idea of presenting and reporting what's actually going on. And, you know, I think there's a human instinct to kind of want tidy, simple cleaner narratives, the Astros, the science dealing, the relationship MLB has to both, it's a mess. It's messy, it's shades of gray. I think some are darker gray than others. You know, I think there are some pretty clear conclusions you can take away within it. But yeah, the I mean the Astros have personal accountability or should for cheating, right? like it's it's at the end of the day it's their action. Yet there was an environment created or, or fostered by you know, the, the organization and Major League Baseball that made it easier or, or provided incentive to do so. And y- you can extend this to uh, some of the stuff that even the front office was doing, right? Well, some of it's you know, you can tie it back to the CBA and well, who negotiates the CBA? It's the, the owners and the players union. So it's not it's not tidy. I don't I don't know if I'm giving you quite the answer to the question, but that's that's where my head goes. I was thinking of
2: alternate scenarios where the sign stealing could have come out sooner or later. There's the infamous Danny Farquhar incident, right, where he was aware that the Astros were banging something and he was sitting there in the clubhouse hoping a reporter would ask him about it. So if uh, if only someone had asked, maybe we would have known uh, even before that postseason, right? And then there's another scenario where maybe you don't get tipped off. Maybe no one does. I mean, I'm sure during that time when you were trying to nail down that story, you're thinking, oh, Passen is going to chase this one down or someone else is. But is there any scenario where they actually do keep it so close to the vest that we still don't know about it, where it's more of a 1951 giant sort of situation, where it doesn't become widespread knowledge for 50 years after the fact, or where there are just too many people involved in this
0: conspiracy for the
2: secret to be kept for that long?
0: You know, I'm very glad Danny Farquhar participated in our story, so this is not meant to be critical. But, you know, he also would have the ability to tap a reporter on the shoulder or pick sure. up the phone and call. I, mean, I, right. I always thought that was funny about, <laughs> yeah. about his comment. Yeah. Uh, but I'm glad he spoke to us for that original story. That was an uh, you know important count to have. You know, in the time that I had the story in the notebook, you know, before pairing up with Ken, I, I'm trying to remember. Did I? Th- I don't think I ever really thought anybody else was close to it. I, I, you know, I, hmm. I I I had some strong sourcing, and you know, I I just. For for me, there's a bit of sliding doors concern sometimes. Oh, look at that. Ken Rosenthal is literally calling me. I will have to call you later, <laughs> Ken. <laughs> <laughs> wow, look at that. Look at us. Like, what We're if I don't up than with the guy who's <laughs> calling me right now? Like, you know, uh, do I break the story? Does it come out when it does? Or honestly, does it come out at all? And, and I, think, I think your point's a good one, Ben, that it was a team-wide cheating scheme and therefore – the numbers of people who would have knowledge of this are, you know, higher than probably, well, I don't know, individual PED use or more individual forms of cheating. Mm-hmm. And so just, you know, on a numbers game and we're talking about the Astro, so we like numbers. Yeah, it, it was it probably has a higher percentage chance of coming out at some point than not. but. You know, look, there's been a lot of finger pointing of, of team. Uh, I think the Astros, you know, a lot of crossfire, right? Go back to that 18, 19 yeah. period. But nobody had anything firsthand. And and as I remember it, I mean, I wish I could, you know, talk. Now, well, I don't know if I want to talk to myself from back then. But, you know, I wish <laughs> I could ask myself that I did. I really feel like anybody else was on it. And I, I was, you know, the separator for for what Ken and I did with the Astros and the Red Sox was firsthand sourcing. It was on the inside. and. You know, I looked around and nobody else had that at that point. Maybe it would have gotten there. I, I don't know. I don't know how to predict it. I, I'm, I'm glad I'm not in a spot where I had to find out. I mean, I, I do remember remember a conversation with a couple other national writers, actually not long before the story came out. And there was this perception that, ugh, you know, the Astros, they're dirty. And there were other teams that people were talking about that same way. But I, I, we, we were standing around one of us. One of them said, I don't know who's going to get it, but I hope it's one of us, you know. And so I think there was a sense that there was something there, but I don't know that anybody else really had the way in. You know, it's a hard thing to get to.
1: Is your perception that the league has learned anything from the way that it thought about the potential for malfeasance here? Because you note in the book that, you know, A lot of people had issue with the fact that players were not suspended as part of the league's punishment for what happened in 17. And some of that, you know, no doubt was them being concerned that it would lead to a protracted disagreement with the union. But some of that was a lot of that was that Manfred had said this is going to be on general managers and field managers to to tell their people, here's what the rules are, don't do this, and that there was a failure of communication at the top of the organization. And so he was sort of in a weird position when it came to potentially punishing the players. Now we're in an era where there's a lot of rule change, on-field rule change happening. I think you were at the presentation in Florida, which was, you know, the Florida version of what I saw in Arizona, where, you know, they're talking about the shift restrictions. And having spoken to clubs about how they might try to circumvent those rules, and then trying to design around that in their rule structure, this is a very long way of me asking: like, do you think that MLB is better positioned now to prevent whatever the next version of electronic sign stealing is?
0: Yeah, when, I, when you started to ask the question, I, I mean, I was going to point to the, the the circumvention discussion too. You know that, that that's kind of evidence that they're they're actively thinking about it, at least in one regard. You know, rule breakers are typically always going to be ahead of the rule enforcers or rule makers. I don't think it's going to change. You would have thought coming off of PEDs that MLB would have been wiser about technology. And, you know, you can say that's a little easy to say in hindsight, but... I mean, even when it started to get loud, MLB was still lagging behind. You know, they 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 were letting teams move their video rooms closer to the dugout. Well, I, I mean, some of it's kind of astonishing in in hindsight, frankly. You know, but so I'm I mean, in my head, I'm thinking, well, what if somebody hacked into Pitchcom, or what if somebody hacks into if we ever get the the abs not not anti-lock brakes the automated (laughs) ball strike system you know what 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 kind of requirement i'm like is hacking something that manfred would have to specifically give notice to i mean yeah maybe that's a breaking a federal law i don't know you know it like to some degree it's a question of imagination you know what lengths would somebody go to and, and does it fall into kind of a bucket of behavior that that doesn't really exist yet but if i mean if it's about electronically stealing signs they now have that on the books right the union the league did work out that yes this will be punishable going forward so i guess right. if you were to hack into pitchcom it would fall under that and maybe federal law i also wondered
2: there's the question of whether the astros have learned anything and i guess that comes down to whether jim crane has learned anything because most of the old astros leadership has moved on and I'm kind of curious what you think of the comments that, say, Jeff Bagwell made last year, which a lot of people dunked on at the time, you know, when Bagwell was saying we need to balance things better. The game is played by humans. It's not played by computers. You know, We've gone too far in one direction. I think a lot of people were looking at that thinking, oh, this is just a old school, old fashioned guy. Hasn't he been paying attention? The Astros are super successful and they're all in on analytics and everything. But you read winning fixes everything and it sounds like maybe there should have been more Bagwells in the room having some say when it came to treating people like people, right? So, I wonder whether you think that and the hiring of, of Dana Brown, who's kind of from a different baseball background, certainly, as Jeff Luda or, or even James Click, for that matter, I know you're not covering the Astros on a day-to-day basis anymore, but does that represent a, a pivot that you
0: think is significant
2: in light of everything you've reported here? I
0: mean, it certainly has the appearance of a pivot, as though Crane has decided he, he wants a different, at least an outward image than he had before. You know, Click was still in that uh, analytics mold. I, you know, the question and, you, you know, you guys can can tell me if you agree with this. I think the question becomes, does a Dana Brown, who, whose background is more traditional, have people in place and then subsequently listen to and incorporate those people in place who are masters of R&D, who know the analytics space? Does, does he have people do that for him and continue to? foster its growth you know you you yourself i i don't think at the very top of an organization necessarily have to have been a McKinsey consultant to put your organization in a position to be forward-thinking you know he's walking in to a franchise that already has a ton of valuable ip and systems built right Mm -hmm. Right. but you still have to keep innovating so it's i think it's more of a long-term do they fall from i don't know top two three in analytics, if that's what we want to, or number one, whatever, wherever they sit, do they fall from there? Do they do they still stay toward the top? And and what is the decision making process? Does it revert back to I'm going with my gut, or do they kind of maintain some sort of you know objective subjective way to do it? Right, like the Astros' way of uh, Sig's big thing was combining you take the subjective information, you take the objective information, and then you objectively meld them. Except even in deciding how you meld them. Isn't that kind of inherently subjective anyway? Yeah. So I, I, it, it is certainly visually a pivot and, you know, kind of in sticking with the theme of the book, the question is really what's going to go on behind the scenes. Outwardly. Yes. It, it's different. How are they going to function internally?
1: I wonder what your sense is of the, the self-reflection that the fallout from what happened in Houston caused, not just in Houston, but in other front offices, right? Because, even before your in Ken's initial reporting, there was a lot of industry resistance to Houston, you know, their culture, the way that they seem to treat other orgs, Lou now having this reputation of being smug and difficult to deal with. You know, we saw public manifestations of that culture and its pressure and then the, the damage it can do with the Taubman incident in the postseason. But do you get the sense that clubs said, well, that's a problem over there? Or did it cause anyone to say, huh, maybe we should think about what is the culture that we are actively constructing within our own organization? Because I think there's this sense that like good culture just happens if you have like nice people, but that doesn't seem sufficient, especially in an industry as sort of win-oriented and competitive as baseball. So do you think that this caused any GMs of other clubs to sit up at night and say, huh, am I like Jeff Lou now? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, honestly, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that or or if I, if I have something that, I'm trying to think of, I've had a conversation along these lines with, you know, outside people, people outside of Houston. I think the general tenor in the last couple years, I don't know, maybe even three, four years, people's eyes started to to open a little wider to everything that was going along with the big data revolution, the, the the outgrowth of Moneyball, right? The negatives that came with it, along with the many positives and the many innovations and the many smart things that were brought into the game. I mean, that that's my general feeling. I mean, I, I see, look, there are media people who were prominent and remain prominent who couldn't stand to hear a bad word about the Astros 10 years ago, right? When, it, you know, Back when I was at the Chronicle and reporting about questions of their culture and the way they were being run, it was, oh, how did you know? It, it was in so many words, how dare you question our darling Astros? They represent what is smart and where this industry is going, Yeah. right? And it it, beca- it was a very oversimplified, I, I think, argument. It, you know, no people just didn't want to hear anything bad about about a, a, a team that they perceived to be smart and was smart, right? But. There was, a, there was other stuff going on. I think now people are catching up a bit. And I'm very proud of, of breaking the Astro story, the, the cheating scandal. I, I am almost potentially more proud of having been willing to report on questions of, of management culture there yeah. nine years ago. And really being in front with that at the exact same time that people were writing the exact opposite. And I think, in general, people are, are are paying a little bit more attention. But I don't know. I don't know if any GM is is reading. I, I hope a GM reads Winning Fixes Everything and tells all his or her friends about it, if it's Kim. But I don't know. I'd be curious to hear, frankly, if, if if outside people feel that way.
2: Yeah, I think one of the enduring questions of the story and the book is really, can you innovate without being a total dick? <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. can, can you push the envelope without being Jeff Luno like who just comes off as so extremely unlikable in the book, I mean, for good reason. And you detail how being unlikable in many cases hurt the Astros' efforts to implement things because there was such secrecy and a lack of trust and just a, a personal dislike and people pitted against each other and that in many ways that was counterproductive. And Yet they continue to win. They've been the most successful or, or second most successful organization over the past several years. And the other one that has a case as the most successful, the Dodgers, they're sort of in a similar boat, you know, not exactly the same transgressions and not the same kind of confirmations, but there's certainly smoke around them, as you detail in the book, and, and other things that we know about that are sort of unsavory too. So that's kind of the enduring question. Like, does it have to be moving fast and break? things you know can you do that in a more humane way is there a better way like does it have to be either you're the Astros and everyone dislikes you for a good reason, but you are actually kind of on the cutting edge and you're successful. Or you're the Rockies, let's say, you know, where it's all kind of like, oh, we have a good group of guys here. Or, or the Royals, you know, or like, you know, we take care of our our employees and they appreciate that. But we're also not winning a lot of games here. <laughs> so, is there a middle ground where you can innovate and win a bunch of games and also go about it in a better way? You know, very reflexively,
0: my answer is yes, uh, mm-hmm. I, and I think. Th- what the Astros did was more or less write a blank check for themselves to behave as they wanted. The notion that you cannot be innovative, an industry leader, without doing the extreme things that the Astros did, like simply the treatment of people. Jeff Luno absolutely could have handed out titles. He could have paid people better. A hundred percent, right? There are very clear ways. and But I think for a long time as well, look. You know, we came to an organization that had no analytics. We, 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 we want to move very quickly. And there, there's a cost to the speed of adoption and, and to being on the bleeding edge. I think it is true that, yes, if you are an innovator, a disruptor, you are always going to ruffle some feathers. There will be some inherent pushback. That is true. But I think that can be leveraged as a narrative, frankly. And I think it was in Houston. It was used as cover to do things that simply were not necessary you you did not have to treat employees quite the way you did in Houston and i think if we were to kind of pick through different examples did that have to happen could you have let the scouts go oh i don't know a year later could you have spent some money on a training program for them and seen if any of them could have passed the training program rather than firing them i mean you know go down the lists right the idea that it had to be this way or they wouldn't be innovative i think that's hooey
1: so there's a lot of Astros DNA across the league now, right? Both just in terms of folks who have at the lower levels who have left Houston and work in other front offices and then in the senior leadership of several organizations. And I know I just asked you if anyone looks in the mirror and says, am I Jeff Lou now? But for those clubs in particular, like, do you think that there is important And meaningful deviation from some of the least and sort of the least humane and most egregious sort of just people practices? Or is this something that we are going to have to continue to see manifest as, you know, that DNA proliferates and proliferates?
0: What's Kevin Goldstein's final quote in the book? Baseball as an industry treats people like shit. It's not like the Astros were sole proprietors or anything like that. I, yeah, I think I'm pretty close to verbatim there. <laughs> but it's, I mean, but it is true generally. The workplace issues that exist in baseball, you know, even beyond kind of extreme ruthlessness on behalf of of one particular team, you know, still exists. There's a line of people out the door to walk, work in this industry. Teams right. know that and they can subsequently treat people very disposably. And, you know, now that owner's eyes are, are open to Moneyball and Moneyball 3.0 or whatever point we're on now, if someone can save them money, they will want that. Jeff did so many things to demonstrate to Crane his own worthiness. Based on look how much money I'm saving you. Look how much more efficient I'm being with resources. I mean, one of the anecdotes in the book that is a little more striking to me was Luno going to these meetings with Astros owners and, you know, showing them, look, look where we rank compared to other teams, you know. And and so if I took the question to be, is the Astros way sticking around? Yeah. Yeah, it is. But tell me if I, if I didn't hear the question right.
1: No, that's right.
0: Yeah, I
2: I was going to ask about that, too. I was listening to a a Fresh Air interview with the author of a biography of Jack Welch the other day, and the parallels were striking, right, because he had very similar tactics and, you know, practice secrecy and fired tons of people and laid people off and it was super cutthroat and GE grew and turned great profits and he was extremely celebrated and then after he left it kind of fell apart right and and all of this came out about how they were doing this and what they were hiding and what the human costs were and in that case, I mean, that has had financial costs. In the Astros case, it has reputational costs, but they are still winning. They are still successful and people do tend to copy successful teams. So I guess it's a question of whether the fact that their reputation is so tarnished now outweighs the fact that the team continues to be very successful with some of the processes that that administration put in place. And, you know, I look at a team like the Orioles who were probably the the leading landing spot for former Astros people, one of a few. But you look at how they didn't spend this offseason, right? I mean, they're following the Astros' blueprint very closely with the tanking and building up a, a great crop of prospects. And now it's starting to pay off in an Astro style way. But when you have stories in the book about, you know, SIG didn't want to spend any money on free agents. He just wanted to, you know, promote players from within. And that was the only way he was interested in in winning. And when you have SIG and Elias and others who kind of came up at Luno's side, you start to wonder, like, are they just going to continue to follow the blueprint or having followed it to this point and experienced some success, will they then deviate having seen what happened here and and what some of the fallout has been? So you like to think that they've kind of appropriated the parts of the astros model that worked but maybe we'll learn from the parts that that didn't or have come back to haunt them subsequently
0: fans have been so conditioned i, I mean it's like the greatest marketing trick baseball ever pulled was convincing people that that, that what is good for them is to watch terrible baseball that costs <laughs> the owner no money that the owner should spend nothing on it and you know the the cba Certainly was a part of that CBA that the owners, you know, agree to and, and help design the marketing power of of a baseball team. Right. Like there is no group of consumers. I, I at least I can't think of one. I mean, I'm sure it exists somewhere or, or there there's a brand that has more loyalty. Right. But like, you know, you're in this system where people are committed to your product for life. You know, like it's like this ultimate in brand loyalty. If you walk, you know, outside of baseball terms and just look at it in marketing and it gives these teams a lot of power to shove tanking down people's throats and and, and to convince them that it's somehow good for them. I do believe tanking is a grift. I, I'll go on the record with that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I worry that this question will sound Pollyanna-ish, but I wonder if you think there's an opportunity for a team you know, to zig where others have zagged and to make treating people well the centerpiece of a winning strategy where other teams are trying to, you know, cut costs as much as they can, keep payrolls low, keep, you know, scouts in front office, personnel salaries low. We've seen, Ben mentioned a couple of clubs that at, at various points in the last couple of years have sort of bucked the trend and tried to treat their people well, but like, is there a version of that that is more successful than like the Royals? <laughs> I guess is what I'm trying to
0: ask. Yeah. I I think some GMs, whether right, whether they would be assessing themselves properly or not, w- would say that, you know, they do prize it more. I mean, you know, early in the book, there's a quote from a Cubs executive who's saying like, yeah, we tanked, but we were not doing what they were doing. Right. right. We, we, we did, we did, we hired, we, uh, we did value you know, human equity more. Um,
1: we just ruthlessly exploited Chris Bryan's service time while we were doing yeah, that. Yeah, right, right. That's a totally
0: fair point. There could be a lot of, people can talk a big game right. in, in this sport. You know, kind of piggybacking off the, I, I wanted to make this point in the last question, when Ben mentioned Jack Welch, You know, kind of the irony of the whole thing is that you have corporate America entering baseball and everybody treating these like outside businesses. And that's what the Astros are doing, right? We're going to run this like an outside business would be run. This is not an example or really a comparable to the outside business world. It's a close circuit of 30 teams, 30 investments that only appreciate in value, you know, historically. And I I don't see unless the arson situation got so bad, that's not going to change anytime soon you know, they're dependent on one another, right? You're not actually trying to put another team at a business. And there's a lot of flow of people between organizations. And knowing that, it's almost a requirement that you treat people maybe a little better than general corporate America. Because if you don't, when it is such a closed circuit, it is going to come back to bite you. I, I would and do hope that, you know, whether you look at it as like, we're we're gaining an edge here by doing it. Yeah, you can assign that to it. But I think even in just more simple terms, this is good for our business. It is good for our brand. It is good for our long-term health if we are not angering people left and right and taking
2: care of our people. I think that people should read this book even if they think that they've heard enough about sign stealing, right? Even if they have sign stealing fatigue after all this time because uh, you and Ken have done such a great job with that story in a sense i'm i'm even more interested in the other aspects of the story although they're all interrelated i mean some of it is just you know the science doing is just it's sensational and you do have more revelations and details in here i, I tend to think the actual Effect of it Is probably a bit Overblown As as some studies Have shown and that it's it's Almost more interesting As a symptom Of what was going on there Than it is From a competitive standpoint Although I know Some people will never Be convinced of that But you know I think there's Sometimes some dodgy analysis That goes on About the numbers That the side's doing Like there's a, an executive Who's quoted in the book Saying you know Look at the Astros 2017 numbers With runners in scoring position And they had the highest Batting average in baseball And that's true They also had the highest Batting average when there were no runners on, I mean, it was just a good hitting team. <laughs> They've had a lot of good hitting teams. I think they were just good regardless. But a lot of it will come down to the sides doing. I mean, the Astros' reputation is is tied to that forever, and so I do wonder whether you're surprised by any aspect of how the stigma surrounding that either has lingered or has not lingered, because. In some sense, like the team as this sort of nebulous entity, will forever be stained by this, and and certain people still are, but then other people have been forgiven and welcomed back with open arms into the game, and you know, like Carlos Correa, who seems to have been uh, one of the the primary embracers of the sign stealing scheme, if not one of the architects of it. I mean, how much did we all talk about Carlos Correa this offseason and where he was going to sign and and is this signing going to stick? But it was all about his ankle, right? You know, no one cared about sign stealing for him. That was not really seen as a factor that was going to affect his contract anymore. So it's kind of blown over and yet not blown over at all at the same time. So I wonder whether that's how you thought things would shake out when you were on the verge of breaking this thing.
0: I don't know that I had that granular conversation with myself. You know, I, I understood it was, was a very big deal. You know, it was very intense when we were in the end game. there there's a little bit too much of, of the fallout that just couldn't be predicted. I, you know, I didn't know people would be fired. I knew it was possible. I don't think I I thought it necessarily was likely. I, in hindsight, I think I should have realized that. Not that it would have changed the reporting. The reporting was the reporting, right? But I'm trying to bring myself back to, to how I looked at it. I mean, in terms of how it sticks with people now, it, it is very much still part of a narrative in a lot of ways. But functionally, you know, is it hindering? Well, players are are, are dealing with booze a lot. You know, it's it's – it's kind of the elephant in the room. It just you know just kind of sitting there and you can go over and pet it if you want. I mean it, it it's <laughs> it, it's not. I don't think the elephant's leaving anytime soon. Right. I, I think mm-hmm. as far as conversationally, it will always be attached. You know, but if, if you go a level beyond that, is it a hindrance? Well, maybe a little bit mentally for guys who are getting booed constantly. Um, it certainly still provokes a lot of fan discussion. You know, believe me, I see plenty of it in my mentions, but <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't I don't know that I knew whether it was going to totally go away or not. I, I, I don't think I had that conversation with myself, but I would be surprised if if at some point like it's never talked about. I mean, the black socks are still talked about. People will still invoke the 51 giant. I mean, mm-hmm. major cheating scandals are remembered. I, yep. It's just the way it
2: is. Yeah. And there's at least a temporary penance. It's like, you know, Carlos Beltran loses his job as Mets manager, but then bit by bit, you know, oh, he's back in the yes broadcast booth. Oh, now he's back in the Mets front office. Oh, maybe he has to suffer some penalty in his first year on the Hall of Fame ballot, but maybe it's just a a one year slap on the wrist. So, you know, it kind of peters out and yet in a sense that will always be associated with him. And I know from seeing your mentions, I mean, there are people who think you have it out for the Astros, right? And probably have thought that for a decade, since, as you noted, you were, you know, really the first one who was reporting on a lot of these issues before the the full scope of them came into view. And on the one hand, I understand how if this kind of culture of science dealing was semi pervasive, at least among the leading teams at the time, which, you know, you do acknowledge in the book, That fans of other teams might feel like, you know, or or fans of the Astros might feel like, well, it wasn't just us, but as you know they're the only ones that, that got caught for doing something you know as elaborate as what they were caught doing so I, I feel like you kind of gotta just accept that just swallow it you know it's not like a conspiracy Evans out to get the Astros if uh, you were tipped off to some other team doing something the same then you would have reported that too so I think there is sort of some motivated reasoning you know biased uh, they're attacking our our team our tribe so we have to circle the wagons and and pretend that everyone was doing exactly the same thing when that perhaps wasn't the case.
0: Yeah, there, there, there's there's certainly the the kind of irrational you know, fan devotion that that becomes a part of it. But kind of what you, the way you were just talking, you know, you can kind of you can go in circles with this. It, it, it's what I was talking about earlier. The whole thing is a mess, right? Yes, and and, right. and it, so it is therefore kind of unsatisfying wherever mm-hmm. you sit. It's not really clear cut, shut slammed, and and I think that with the combination of just kind of the shock value of a world series winning team cheated, it melds together to make it this topic that can just keep rolling. Yes, And you know, that I think that's pretty unique. I, I mean, I can't, you know, what, what's a comparable, I mean, his PEDs are kind of the closest comparable, but it's different because it's individual. It, it's, a, it's on its own little Island in a weird mm-hmm. way. Maybe it's a big Island. Yeah. Well, that's
2: why it deserved a book like explanation. And I'm glad it got one and a, a great one here. So, I don't know if this is the last word on the Astros or or the sign stealing scandal, but it's uh it's if it is, it's a great last word. <laughs> I think you know some people will probably decide they don't need to read any more words about the Astros ever after this. But I think this is you know kind of the definitive statement and. You know, might uh, someone with some other team make a deathbed confession in 40 years about some other side-stealing scandal and then we'll know about that one too? Yeah, maybe. Who knows? Uh, decades down the road, maybe more details will come out. But this is just a really thorough and perceptive and adeptly reported account of, of everything that was going on and, and how everything led to the scandal that you brought to the surface. So it's it's just great. It's really great and I hope people will check it out and pick it up, it's out now everywhere you can find books. Winning Fixes Everything How Baseball's Brightest Minds Created Sports Biggest Mess. Congrats again, Evan, and thank you.
0: Thanks. You know, I, I, I have one thought as you can I offer mm-hmm. one more thought, sure. Of course, if the science stealing doesn't happen, the culture stuff is still there in in a weird way. I, I yeah. wonder who believes it, yeah. If you don't have the science stealing blow up, and maybe even if you remove the Taubman stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, because we're so fixed on the result being the thing. And, you know, I remember this isn't in the book, but I, but I remember right after the Astros won in 17, I talked to somebody and they were telling me how screwed up the invites to the parade were. Like the, like the team was being stingy with certain people, little nickel and diming stuff. Right. And and it was representative to them of like, you know, e- even in the moment you win, there's just still stuff behind the scenes that people don't see and aren't aware of. And and that's it's kind of a it's a little existential for me. It's there that there's all this stuff that that goes on behind the scenes and, and very often doesn't make the narrative. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, that's where my my head is at. tonight. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You can be efficient and still be dysfunctional. Right.
0: Mm hmm. I still want
2: to know more about AJ Hinch breaking the monitors, though. That's my main fascination from the entire <laughs> the entire saga is AJ Hinch sabotaging the monitors multiple times, but then never actually like saying stop. <laughs> just kind of that's just the weirdest part of the entire thing to me. Which uh, you do address in the book.
0: Yeah, yeah. He he did not go to the level of the team wide demonstration. He broke the <laughs> monitors, but it, it was never this like definitive exclamation point that he should have made.
2: Yeah. All right, well, I hope, uh... Ken was not calling you to break some other massive story while we were interviewing (laughs) you here. (laughs) I love that you mentioned in the book that it's like a a reporting superpowers like when your colleague is Ken Rosenthal and you know that you're only going to get someone on the phone one time potentially then you have Ken make that call you know (laughs) just because he has the cachet of Ken Rosenthal so why not have him be the one making the request so I hope it was nothing pressing and uh, I guess we can sidebar about which Astros front office members are the cast from Andor, because I've been thinking about that the entire time.
0: <laughs> that's good. But,
1: but Ben, I've laughed
0: of, all day. That's good. Which
1: of them? Which of them are in The Last of Us? Because that's a show I'm actually up to date on.
2: <laughs> yes. Well, you got to catch up on Andor too. Oh, the Last of Us is good, but it's scary. It's really it is scary. scary. <laughs> it's really scary. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Big scaredy cat.
2: All right, let's wrap up with the Pass Blast, which comes to us from 1969 and also from David Lewis, who is an architectural historian and baseball researcher based in Boston. Now, before we get to David's Pass Blast, I have one that caught my eye because Sal Bando passed away recently a longtime really excellent third baseman, and also after he stopped playing, a a pretty successful baseball executive, too. And Bando, like, you could make a Hall of Fame case for him. He's uh, not the leading third base snub. There are many. But he's 16th all-time on the third base Jaws list. He's right between Buddy Bell and Dick Allen on there, though Dick Allen was not a third baseman as regularly as Sal Bando was. He's just above Evan Longoria. And just above uh, current Nolan Arnato, who's still adding to his case, of course. But that's the kind of player Sal Bando was. Really good, like around the Buddy Bell, Ken Boyer range, a little bit below Greg Nettles. Just a really solid, hall of very good at the very least type player. And when he passed away recently, what caught my eye is that his obituaries mentioned that Joe DiMaggio had played a part in his breakout So the New York Times obit says Bando was initially touted as a defensive talent and he struggled early on trying to hit big league pitching. He credited Joe DiMaggio, then an executive and occasional hitting coach for the Athletics, with getting him to close up his stance and keep his head down to hit for more power, the Sporting News reported in 1969. I would guess that that obit was pulling from his Sabre bio because his Sabre bio also mentions that Bando said that and that it came from that 1969 Sporting News article. And I was fascinated by that because I I love stories of players reinventing themselves at the major league level, especially when it comes from a, a former superstar giving them a tip and giving them the one weird trick that they need to unlock some latent potential. So I was intrigued by this story, and I looked up the 1969 Sporting News article, and I am much less convinced now than I was that Joe DiMaggio played an important role in Sal Bando's breakout, though I suppose it is possible. A lot of people don't know that Joe DiMaggio was with the A's in the late 60s. He kind of came out of retirement to get a fully vested MLB pension, or at least that was part of his motivation. And he was a uniformed coach for those seasons and also a front office executive, and so he did do some working with players. And the 1969 article does say those who watched the A's last year noted at the start of the season that Bando was standing closer to the plate with his right foot nearly in back of it. This worked well for a while, but the pitchers began to catch on. I was getting jammed on everything, Sal disclosed. Then Joe D told me to close up my stance. However, it continues. This, of course, refers to Joe DiMaggio, coach and executive vice president of the A's. He dropped his little hint to Bando in Cleveland and Sal accepted the advice a few days later in New York on May 20th. He lined out and doubled twice the next day. He was three for five. So I think if this tip had happened prior to the 1969 season, I'd be more convinced. But. As it was, if you look at his splits just for that 1969 season when his big offensive breakout happened because he was kind of a light hitter prior to that. But if you divide it before and after the DiMaggio tip in May that he integrated, then it's not as convincing because entering the game when he incorporated this tip, his season-to-date OPS was 882, his rest-of-season OPS was 885. He homered in 5.6% of his plate appearances that season prior to the tip and 3.9% of his plate appearances after the tip. So it didn't seem like he actually did better. His power breakout had happened early that season before he got this tip from DiMaggio. So sadly, that makes it a little less uh, compelling to me. So I don't know if we can credit Joe D for the Sal Bando breakout, but I'd like to think so. It's possible, of course, that DiMaggio could have given Bando a, a tip at some other time. Maybe he worked with him in spring training. Who knows? Or... That early season power surge might not have lasted and the hitters might have caught up to him because he did face a bunch of expansion teams early in that 69 season. And he'd hit some of his eight homers to that point off of those expansion teams, although you'd figure that the weather would probably be colder at that point. As we discussed, it's cold even in Arizona right now, relatively speaking. Relatively (laughs) speaking. Yeah, the sixty-nine article doesn't actually say that this change was made to increase his power or that there was anything about lowering his head. So I don't know where the saber bio got that. And it also notes that Bando had become more patient; that he had decided that he wasn't going to swing at everything anymore, and he was going to take more pitches. And I think that might be as responsible as anything for his power surge. Because uh, sometimes when you're more selective, you put yourself in better counts, and then you can take advantage of that with power. So I would guess that it was that. That selectivity that had more to do with it. He also notes that uh, he had taken a lovely, beautiful bride early that year, I guess, and uh, getting married has helped me. He said, I was always clean and neat around my apartment when I was single. Every day I'd clean up my apartment and then do errands. By the time I got to the ballpark, I was tired. So his new wife at the time was, I guess, doing more of his errands. And so he was not tiring himself out by doing the errands. (laughs) That was one of his explanations for why he was doing better. And also he was getting lots of Italian home cooking from his uh, new bride as well. So he attributed it to that. (laughs) So who knows? Could have been a mix of those things.
1: The power of pasta
2: yeah exactly
1: it's actually cold it's not just relatively cold it's actually cold for real cold yes freeze warning
2: sal bando was was carbo loading so that was why he broke out who knows supposedly joe dimascio did help reggie jackson cut down on his strikeout somewhat i'm not saying he didn't help players just not sure that bando going from nine dingers to 31 was a case of italian american athletic legends passing the torch anyway The pass blast from David, also from 1969, he writes, baseball has a popularity problem. What else is new? (laughs) (laughs) 1969 was commemorated as the 100th anniversary of professional baseball in the United States. While some writers chose to celebrate the game's storied history, others saw the centennial as an opportunity to lament its uncertain future. In an April 1969 column titled, Is Baseball Doomed? (laughs) Newspaper Enterprise Association sports editor Ira Burkow suggested that the grand old game is on its last legs. As baseball struggled to sustain its popularity, especially when compared to other sports... Burkow laid out what he believed to be the reasons why baseball was declining in popularity, including too much dead time during a game. Watching a relief pitcher stroll in from the bullpen, for example, is as dramatic as viewing as a man sleeping for eight hours. Much of baseball's drama and excitement comes from slugging from the home run with the bases loaded from the slide for a triple. Now the game has nearly evolved to a game of catch between the pitcher and catcher with the batter there only for decoration. There are more and more teams with fewer and fewer stars for fans to identify with. Talent is thinning because of the lure of gigantic bonuses available in other sports. The shifting of franchises brought into focus the fact that baseball was really a business instead of a sport. Quoting social philosopher Marshall McLuhan, Burkow echoed, Baseball is doomed. It is a dying sport. And David concludes, 55 years later, baseball is still very much alive. However, we continue to find ourselves strategizing ways to shorten the length of the game and boost offensive numbers in hopes of matching the popularity of other sports. So I guess it was true that it was declining in popularity. Almost everything has except for football. But you could go back a century earlier than 1969 and find people saying baseball is doomed. So we're here still saying it sometimes and still trying to do something about it.
1: I mean, it can not be dead and still be dying, you know? That's their concern. It's just a
2: long, slow, protracted death just circling the drain for centuries. All right, just so we don't leave you with the idea of baseball being doomed, a few final notes. One quick correction on our last episode. I think I misstated the terms of the new position player pitcher limitation. So just to clarify, under the new proposed rule, position players will only be allowed to pitch in extra innings or in the ninth inning for a leading team that is up by 10 or more runs or any time for a trailing team that is down by eight runs or more. Also, some news about an effectively wild legend, John Jaso, our guest on episode 1220. We got fascinated by Jaso's life philosophies And laid-back, kind of unbaseball like attitude We talked to him about his love of sailing in retirement Well, he was the subject of a New York Times profile this week Which documented his ongoing itinerant existence And it sounds like he's absolutely living his best life Sailing all around the world, tropical paradise Perhaps we should all strive to live like John Jaso Happy he's happy And one more follow-up about the MLB and MLBPA logo From listener and Patreon supporter Zach Remember, we're looking for a Logo that doesn't exclude pitchers by focusing only on the batter now that we're in the universal DH era. So Zach says, I think a great MLBPA logo, which would also celebrate the heated and intense sexuality underlying baseball, would be the celebratory butt slap. Probably the most unifying icon of all the players. I counter the high five, though. What could be better than two baseball players high fiving since the first documented high five ever was between baseball players? Glenn Burke and Dusty Baker. That would be the perfect MLBPA logo. We'll be back with another preview pod next time. It'll be the Mariners And the White Sox For now You can support Effectively Wild On Patreon By going to Patreon.com Slash Effectively Wild The following five listeners Have already signed up And pledged some monthly Or yearly amount To help keep the podcast going Help us stay ad-free And get themselves Access to some perks Jan Venema Chiron Zavadny, Joseph Rosso Benny And Joseph Bernick Thanks to all of you Patreon perks Include access To the Effectively Wild Discord group Which is gonna hit 1,000 members One of these days You could be the one To do it All of our Patreon supporters Supporters are eligible to join that group. We also offer monthly bonus episodes, and playoff live streams, and discounts on ad-free Fangraphs memberships, and merch, and books, cameo-style recordings, many more extras await. Patreon.com/EffectivelyWild. Patreon supporters can also contact us via the Patreon website. Although anyone can email us via podcast at podcast@fangraphs.com. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at Facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild you can follow effectively wild on twitter at ew pod and you can find the effectively wild subreddit at r slash effectively wild thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance we'll be back with that next preview pod before the end of the week. talk to you soon